morning. Welcome to Don't Be the Artist. I'm Hagen. I'm Dave. I'm Adam. Punch's co-host on a beach party. Welcome to Don't Be the Artist, bitch. <laughs> Sorry, what the fuck did you just say? Okay. Say it yeah. again. Uh, say, if punches. you don't get it. No, I, d- don't I ge- get it. I genuinely don't think I heard you correctly. That's, I, I, I didn't hear anything you said that made sense. Punch's co-host at a beach party. Oh, yes. I, 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 it sounded like you said hunches, and then I kind of lost everything after that, and then I heard beach party, and I was very confused. Welcome to the podcast, bitch. It'd be yeah. I heard. Sorry, I did hear that. Welcome to the podcast, bitch. That's what y'all. Yep. Welcome to the podcast, bitch. <laughs> Guys, hey. I have I have great news. So. Over a year ago, I played a show at Dan Silverleaf in Denton. It's a great venue. I lost a, like my my case of GoPros at the time. That those are my two GoPros, and I lost my GoPros. And I got a text like three months ago from someone who works at Dan's that they found it over a year later. <gasps> and then I forgot about it. And then I got them today. Whoa! Wow! That's that's great news, that's everyone. Unexpected at this point, right? Over a year, over, and my fiance Kara went and looked for it one day because I, I was I was busy, and she was like, "I'll go look." And she like asked them if they'd seen it. She gave them her phone number and everything. Didn't hear back, and then I get a Facebook message from someone I don't know that they found my GoPros. I wonder how they knew they were yours. Did it have your name on the case? I think they looked through the SDs. I think they watched the footage probably. Dude, do you think they saw your nudies? There's no, uh, yes, I, I, I frequently just take the tiny little, like, like the tiny little GoPros and just put them down my pants. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks everybody for joining us, uh, for a, uh, another iteration of four white guys on a podcast. Woo! This, this week we'll be bringing you back all the way to one of the, you know, the whitest things we can do. Uh, we're talking about we're talking about Woodstock '69. Nice. Um, we're taking you all the way back to 1969. Uh, that is not the summer of love, by the way. Uh, a lot of people uh, say that it is, but I think that's 1963 or 1964. But we're going to be taking you back to the very famous music festival that was billed as an Aquarian Exposition three days of peace and music. It was not named Woodstock at the time, and it was not in Woodstock, New York. And it wasn't only three days. <laughs> and let's also let's also yeah. make sure that you're not getting it confused. Today, we are not talking about a cartoon bird from the Peanuts. Very important for all of you to know, we're not talking about a cartoon bird from the Peanuts. This is a music festival. You, it took you me just a couple took days. It took me a couple of days to figure this out. I was going to make that the album art and confuse everybody. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Man, I didn't even know that was a thing, but here what? we go. So wait, wait, we're talking wait. about Snoopy no, 69. No. <laughs> Snoopy 69. Wait, wait, wait. What, what do you mean? What, what did you not know was a thing? Um, a cartoon. What is that? <sighs> All right. It's a bunch of drawings. Is that like the, that's doing, the keep thing doing, when you turn on and it like... I thought it was called a radio, not a cartoon. Keep doing your intro. So, we're taking you to Bethel, New York at Matt, Max, sorry. I'm so sorry, Max. Rest in peace, Max. Uh, We're taking you to Bethel, New York at Max Yasker's family dairy farm. Um, I always thought that 
Woodstock, the festival, this one that we're talking about was in upstate New York. I was completely wrong there. It's not that far from New York City. It's right on the border of Pennsylvania, Bethel, New York is. So just a little geographical location for anybody who cares about that. That was one thing I was completely unaware of. As we said. It's like 40 miles from Woodstock. Yeah. I mean, I do have to say that does count as upstate New York because anything outside of the city is upstate New York. (laughs) Okay. But we're not talking about uh, what's that place that uh, has that hardcore scene. The, the, every time I die is from it and all that. <sighs> Fuck. What is it called? Not New not, York city. Not the Bronx. Not. No. Yeah. No, the Bronx is <laughs> in New York city. The Bronx. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Buffalo. Never, Buffalo. Yeah. Buffalo. That's it. <laughs> what the fuck? The show sucks. <laughs> all right. Thanks. We'll see you guys next week. Woodstock. <laughs> Woodstock. Go watch some cartoons. He's a bird. <laughs> All right. Well, let me open up my uh, can of wine here. <laughs> Just a blatant lie. Just a fucking blatant lie. There's no way. You, there's no way that you already put wine in that Dr Pepper, and there's no way that you found a way to order that. So we're gonna take you back to the scheduled dates of August fifteenth through seventeenth, nineteen sixty nine. But the actual dates ended up being August fifteenth to the eighteenth for reasons which we will get to. And as I said, this was billed as the lengthy name and a name I still, after researching this for a whole week, and I would say I've known about Woodstock for a very long time, and this should have come up at this point, but it is called, it was billed as an Aquarian Exposition, Three Days of Peace and Music. Did anybody drag up anything that explains that name? They wanted to have a festival that was... uh... Well, I mean, maybe I'm jumping the gun, but Michael Lang is uh, basically the face of the original Woodstock. He was the big promoter, and he was trying to draw influences from other festivals he'd seen that were like um, where they had art and different things that weren't just music. So it was a place where people could come and be weird and not be judged for it. So I think that has something to do with Aquarian Exposition. Well, the name's even longer because it starts with Woodstock Music and Art Fair presents an Aquarian Exposition in White Lake, New York, which is a long name, but also tells you that it has music and art, which makes sense, right? And then the other stuff, nobody really knew what they meant. Well, it sounds like if you were to explain this without knowing what it becomes, it if you were to explain what Adam and Dave just said, I would expect a you know, jazz festival in Denton that we all know and love, which is a great time. I love going, but it's no festival that we're talking about right now. It's not these, like you have these massive headliners or anything like that. And like, you're blocking up traffic. Um, but what we're talking about on this in Woodstock, uh, 1969, I'm just gonna, the, the numbers that you should know is that there were 32 musical acts including Jamie Hendrix, including Credence Clearwater, Revival. That's a fucking name. And it you had The Who. You had all these huge names at the time. But then on top of those 32 musical acts, they had more than 400,000 people show up. I think uh, it was a number more around 450,000. But depending on what you're reading, it's always 
it's floating between 400,000 to 500,000 people. So half a million people. As the years went on, people were starting to exaggerate it, and then history got a little blurred. But yeah, there was definitely hundreds of thousands of people. And it's yeah. part of that's part of the reason why they had trouble uh, locking down a location and how they ended up at Max Yasger's farm, his dairy farm, because he, they tried to go to other places. Was it Wallkill was the first place? And yeah, they were like, was. The, the township or whatever were like, the township said, we, we only want 50,000 people tops. And they were like, uh, okay, yeah, we'll do that. And then they said, anything over a certain number of people you have to have a permit for. And then they wouldn't give them the permits. Well, the other thing too is they already had a permit and then they passed that like city law about having a cap of 50,000. And so they applied for a, por- a permit for like 45,000 and they still got rejected, which obviously they never really expected 45,000 people to show up. They knew it would be more. But when we agreed to talk about this, I did not think I would be reading so much about permitting and whatnot. So right. if you want to skip that little planning and prep section right there, that that's that's what you're in for there. But as we alluded to, the organization crew, um, it was Michael Lang, who is the, the carefree hippie type that you see all the time. He is the face of that crew. Uh, he's the guy with the uh, curly hair. And then you had Artie Kornfeld, and then the other two prominent members were Joel Rosenman and John P. Roberts, which those were the more traditional entrepreneurs and uh, business types. So you had Michael Lang, who was, you know, very carefree and laid back. And then the really, they were the guys who were actually funding it. Uh, And from what I read, uh, the original idea was to have a festival that showcased the musicians that frequented the Woodstock area of New York, such as, you know, Bob Dylan and the band. Um, but, you know, in the formation stages of this festival, it seemed like that threat of pulling the plug was always imminent. Um, because it was to, it was, they, they wanted, they wanted to build a, a studio in Woodstock because of how many musicians were there. And, uh, the investors you mentioned, they had just finished building a studio somewhere else in New York. They're like, we're not fucking doing that, but a festival is a great idea. Do the festival, but we're not doing the music, the studio part of it. They put up like millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. raised a lot of money and then it didn't turn out very well for them. Yeah, exactly. They were able to sell 186,000 advanced tickets and uh, tickets for the weekend were $18 in advance. So if you add that up, that's $3.3 million in ticket sales right there. Yeah, I saw that it was between $18 and $24. Or, so, sorry, advance tickets were $18. Uh, tickets at the gate were supposed to be $24. So that's the equivalent to today's money of $130 and $170, which all in all for a three-day music festival, $170 is dirt cheap, especially when we're talking about you get to see Jimi Hendrix and all these bands. Like, hell yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a crazy amount. You were supposed to be able to buy a single day pass for seven bucks, which they will get to it, but they didn't enforce any limitations of any of that. So you could have seen all this for the equivalent of $50 if you bought a one day pass. Well, and, and part of it too is that they were trying to lock down an area and then they kept getting pushed out of places. And 
they had one field lined up that was just too flat michael said it was like uh like goldilocks this field's too flat and then they find one on max's good old max's farm and it's it's a natural amphitheater basically before they found that they flew around in helicopters for 10 days trying to find a field (laughs) that they liked by the way all the videos of uh max yasker like he if you think of like what is a you know dairy farmer look like in the 60s it's pretty much what you think he's got those thick rimmed glasses he kind of looks like uh eugene levy uh, from Schitt's Creek and many other things, but he he's super endearing. He's just like really positive about it. He's like, I got kids the same age as you, and he's talking to the, the half a million people, and he's just like <laughs> super like, you guys, if we we proved something to the world that we can do this positive thing, I was just like, oh, God damn, this guy's really positive. I love my fav- it. My favorite part of that is when he starts that whole little speech thing because they're like, they're like, Max, the owner of this place wants to say something and everybody cheers and then he gets up and it's like he's holding this microphone like you said there's 50,000 people there and he goes I'm a farmer and everybody goes (laughs) (laughs) they just go ape shit for him (laughs) Jackson did you did you mention Eugene Levy because you know that he played him in a movie oh yeah shit he did play him in uh, Taking Woodstock with Dimitri Martin in it as well so yeah talk about talk about good casting yeah right. Yeah, did you did did you see did you hear the story about what uh, Max said to like his neighbors when they were all like worried about the the, the hippies coming to town? No. <laughs> no, he basically just told them like he basically was like you don't like them because of the way they look and that's the, that's that's not okay. Like I'm not saying that I'm cool with what they are supporting or anything. I'm not I'm not putting any sort of like stock in any of that myself personally. You don't want them here because you don't like the way they look and you have to get over that. And he basically was just like super upfront with his neighbors in the area and all the other farms and was like, "Sorry, like if if this is a real problem, then this is your problem, not ours." Yeah, and they tried to boycott him. Yeah. They tried. They were yeah. having putting signs up around town like "Don't buy milk from Max." Yeah, we gotta sabotage I, this guy. Stop the hippies. <laughs> I think it's important to note that he he wasn't a hippie or anything. He was a pretty no. conservative guy. He was who supported the war, like that most of the people who were at Woodstock didn't like. But he was just like, but they're just people, just like us. We gotta like bridge the the generational gap and. Everybody who's mad about it can go fuck off, kind of like. Yeah, I mean, we're we're talking about the, of course, we're talking about Vietnam, and all the people coming to this festival were part of a counterculture that wanted love and not war and peace and not war. It's like the classic hippie thing. And I think I think part of that part of that quote also when he was talking to his neighbors was like, uh, like this is what America is supposed to be about is like basic, like, like being able to express your opinion. Like the, the people who are fighting over there are allowing these kids, like they, they, they have this right because of what's happening over there. So we like the fact that you don't like the way they look is not the problem or shouldn't be a problem. The other thing that I found really funny was that every time they had any sort of issue, uh, they would like, like, like setting anything up on his land, they would like call him and be like, uh, and his wife would always answer and, and his wife would say, yeah, come over in 30 minutes. 
and he'd come over uh what was his name fuck i the the the, the founder's name mike lang right uh, yeah. so he'd, he'd be coming over and uh <laughs> he had a heart condition the farmer did and so he'd have to like go hit the oxygen like right right as he walked in the room like just to, like calm down because he knew that he'd be coming in with some crazy issue so he'd be like, <laughs> okay cool one second go hit the oxygen and be like all right let's do this <laughs> <laughs> and part of that was that they were they got to a point they didn't have as much time as they would have liked to set up the stage and there's there's footage of them setting it up and it it essentially looks like a bunch of hippies uh doing a lot of really crazy work in a short amount of time so much so that they had to decide whether or not they wanted to finish the stage or finish building a barrier around the festival so that they could have a ticket booth yeah, it was the the whole festival was originally conceived as a ticketed festival. As we alluded to, they were selling advance tickets and they planned on selling tickets the day of the show and throughout the weekend. But it only became a quote unquote free concert when they ran into the issues installing the fences and ticket booths uh, directly before the first day. And they were basically given the ultimatum: "Hey, you can do one of these two. And like, I just like anybody who's listening to this and things like oh yeah well a lot of festivals or a lot of shows set up the day of i i I challenge you to think of the last you know festival or show that you went to that as people were showing up in advance for the show they were still setting up the actual stage not bands not uh you know led displays or anything like that the actual stage was being built there is footage of that that dave was talking about and the they couldn't even finish it the way they wanted to because they wanted to have a yeah, like a more of a covering for it because they knew there was a good chance there would be weather and they couldn't even do that much. Yeah, I've seen better stages in Denton house shows. It looks like just like plywood from a Home Depot or something yeah. like that. I was going to say it's important to note how far away it was from where they were getting their supplies too. Like they had a problem where they couldn't get any more supplies in and that also informed not being able to build a fence or anything. And at the point where people showed up early, there was no way to get trucks through with anything. So that's why they wound up with the stage that they ended up having. Yeah, if it was the day before the festival, there were already 50,000 people there. Yeah, and if you're, again, thinking about, to, to piggyback on what Jackson said, if you if you're, if you if you have been to a festival or a concert where they are still setting up, like as you're showing up, probably something went terribly wrong because those are professionals. And these are people, I mean, like, these are kids, like, these are like what we used to do when we put on house shows, but like not even close to that level, right? Like we, we, we tried to put on house shows and that was too much. And I couldn't imagine the, you know, the, the, the group of us trying to put this together that's that level it just wouldn't work it just i, I think that like uh, someone would get too nervous someone would get angry we just walk away it wouldn't happen i really i don't want to get into it yet but so much during the research for this episode i just kept thinking about wow this sounds oddly familiar to what we were doing when we were throwing house <laughs> shows and yep. stuff like that and i was like wow to think of that on this grand scale of like one of the biggest festivals of all time and not even just talking about attendance like because there are bigger festivals that happen annually than this to this day but i'm talking about like culturally what this festival ended up being and like people just really like i mean you can get a woodstock t-shirt at your local walmart i yeah. guarantee you and and 
the thing with like numbers uh, comparing it to today is irrelevant because like like rock festivals didn't start until 67 and this is 69 so it's like you know it had the, the concept of this kind of festival had really just begun yeah and if you haven't seen uh photos of it which i'm sure everyone has um once again if you listen to this podcast and you don't know what foots or woodstock footage looks like i mean who are you please reach out to me and like please explain to me why you've been listening to us this long because <laughs> i'd love to meet you I don't but understand. if you look at the pictures um the 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 farm Max Yasker's farm is a natural bowl shape that sloped downward. And of course they put, it was like a, a natural amphitheater. So it really worked out well. Um, and by the way, that uh, movie we were talking about, that was a, based on a book, Taking Woodstock. Um, after the team was having issues, uh, the Woodstock was te- team was having the issues trying to find a uh, host for the venue. They uh, were contacted by Elliot Tiber, Tiber, who is the guy who wrote um, Taking Woodstock to host the festival at his 15-acre motel grounds. And from there, he was introduced, or he introduced them to Max Yasker. And that's how that went. So before we actually get into the festival itself and what happened, I do want to mention um, signing on acts. Because they did, of course, like anything else, they were having troubles getting larger acts to sign on. I mean, any festival like this, you can get smaller bands to sign on, but that's not what draws a crowd. And, you know, what they ended up having was uh, Credence Clearwater Revival was the first band to sign on. They uh, signed on for a $10,000 pay, which is equivalent to $70,000 in nowadays. Um, But it was basically as soon as Credence Clearwater signed on, all these other bigger acts just started to fall in line. But as we may talk about in a bit, although they were the first band to sign on, uh, the band uh, and that they helped bring on pretty much everyone along, they have expressed uh, chagrin towards their experience and treatment during the festival. They had a 3 a.m. set time. They explicitly said, we do not want to be in the documentary that came out afterwards. I mean, it was John. John Fogarty said that. Yeah, did you see his quote where he talks about uh, how he felt about it? No. (laughs) Here, I'm going to read this out for you guys. And so this is him. uh, This is John Fogarty recalling their 3.30 a.m. start time at Woodstock. We were ready to rock out, and we waited, and we waited, and finally it was our turn. There were half a million people asleep. These people were out. It was sort of like painting, uh, sort of like a painting of a Dante scene, just bodies from hell all intertwined and asleep, covered in mud. And this is the moment I will never fi- forget as long as I live. A quarter of a mile away in the darkness, on the other edge of this bowl shape, there was some guy flicking his bick, a lighter. And in the night, I hear, don't worry about it, John. We're with you. I played the rest of the show for that guy. That's what he has to say about Woodstock. Yeah, that, 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 okay, that's good. I, 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 like, I like the ending of that because I, I, as, as you start that quote, I honestly am just like, God, I hope he doesn't start. Like, I don't know. Like, you're, this is different because of the era and because 
uh, I, I think for some people it still is different, but my first thought is just grow the fuck up. You got paid your money, and you have a 3.30 a.m. set time. That does suck ass. You got paid your money, though, and you're there to do it. So fucking do it. Like, And he did. Right. That's that, That's a, I, I'm happy the quote ended that way, but I was about to get real mad. Yeah, but before we get into the actual festival, um, the headliner of the festival or you know, this is how I see festivals. The last person to play is typically the headliner. So the headliner, of course, was Jimi Hendrix. And if you're thinking like, oh, he probably had the best set time, guess what? He technically played Monday morning at 9 a.m. So, I mean, everybody had a shitty set. They time. tried to they they tried to change that. They were like they 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 said, hey, do uh like like midnight. Sunday or whatever it was and they and he he said no I, I want to be last like because in his mind it was like the headliner and the most important act is last and he was <laughs> and, and, and they were like no 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 like there's not going to be a lot of people to watch you and people are going to be leaving like you need to play at midnight on Sunday and that's that's the best time for you I guess Monday however you don't have you want to think about it uh and and, and he, he was like no we'll play last We'll play last. And That's hey, fine. Let, let's let that sizzle a bit. So I want everyone who's listening right now to think 450,000. Let's round it up to an even 500,000 people are there. Half a million people. And you're thinking one of the biggest names of in rock at the time, Jimi Hendrix, is there playing. He is the headliner Monday morning. And I want you to, I want you to ponder that thought of how many people did Jimi Hendrix actually play to. But first, we will talk about what actually went down. At the Woodstock, 1969. All right, I'm going to interrupt you. All right, here's your game for the, it's the same every single time, but in between each day, it's going to be the same thing. Um, we can do this a couple different ways, but I'm going to kind of just open this up to the floor here. Um, can you? Can each of you, or just one of you at a time, it's fine. Uh, like each game, but can can each of you name uh, one band that didn't play, but maybe was quote unquote supposed to play? Uh, and can you name the reason why? I want to start, and I'm only saying this because I did mention it. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say two just because I already mentioned them. I assume Bob Dylan and the band, but I'm only going to say Bob Dylan probably didn't play probably because he just didn't even respond. I bet he just was just like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> so here, here's here, here's the deal I want to I want to I want to preface really quickly with this is that there's a lot of bands and and like like you guys mentioned earlier with the number of people that that showed up has has, has been uh, exponentially going up, right? As the mythos continues and as everything, you know, it started with, you know, 250,000 now we're we're at half a million already, right? It's like something crazy happened in the storytelling. Um this the thing with the bands that were supposed to play but didn't is also i believe to be sort of a myth in itself because the concept of them reaching out to some of these bands is true on some level but not true on every level so basically like you can find reasons why every band didn't play and if they were actually asked is still a little muddy because there are stories that some that some of them were asked and then there are stories that some of them were never actually asked to play so, uh, but there, there is a reason for basically every band you can think of and why they didn't play. Uh, so what, so your reason for Bob Dylan was what? Probably some really snooty reason of like, just like he got the letter or something and was just like, uh, I don't care. So like basically his reason was no reason. Do you guys, do you guys have any guesses on what Bob Dylan's reason was for not being there? No. I, I mean, maybe he was probably just like, oh, that sounds scary. Yeah. I imagine he was just an asshole about it. He so the the there's there's two reasons uh, that go around. 
the the one that I believe and that everybody believes uh, is that he didn't like hippies and he didn't like crowds. Uh, that is that is the main reason why he did not play. But he did tell people his daughter was sick. Um, but he did live in Woodstock, and he was not in Woodstock. So obviously, like like we said, it wasn't actually in Woodstock, New York. But during that weekend, he wasn't in Woodstock. He left. So if his daughter was sick, he was like, I don't actually care about this. Bye. So. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Hagen, does that bring us into the? Yeah, yeah. Let's you know, let's go. Let's go to day one. Let's go to day one. Um, day one. I mean, I don't. This might be a prelude to day one, and then Dave, I'll let you take over on the actual days. But the attendees found a massive traffic jam leading to the site, so much so that there's this whole um, supposedly a myth that uh, they uh, the government was going to shut down that highway, but supposedly it never happened. But yeah, Arlo Guthrie said that. At, during his set and then once they arrived they also struggled with bad weather food shortages and shock and surprise poor sanitation but you know there were so many people at the site and it was so hard to get to the site and it was so muddy that the air force ended up assisting by bringing in performers in and out from the concert via airlift which I mean, I love that. You see those shots of them like bringing in artists uh, through the helicopter, which is amazing. But we get in. Dave, who was the first person to play? I want to quickly, I want to really, I want a uh, interesting fun fact in my opinion of um, you're talking about, you know, uh, some, some of the things that, that like, like security and stuff like that and how things worked. So the person they hired to be the head of security was a guy named Wesley Pomeroy. Wesley Pomeroy also happened to be in charge at the time of the uh 19 what is it 1967 or what 1966 the 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 democratic uh national convention in chicago where there was (laughs) where there were the riots they hired him because of that now that confused the ever-living shit out of me because that's insanely backwards right that's like the most backwards ass thing in the world you do more reading Yes, that's insanely backwards because they hired the guy who who was in charge of watching the now it, Chicago was to blame for the whole like for for the riots going wrong, not what he was doing, but it still is weird to me they chose him. Still is very weird to me they chose him. But everybody who has ever worked with him said he's amazing. He is like absolutely amazing. I do want to rebuttal that with um just this little food for thought that in high school uh, at Six Flags over Texas and Arlington, uh, someone died on uh, one of the roller coasters. You know, rest in peace, not trying to be disrespectful here. But I remember the day after they obviously shut down that ride and blah, 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 um, they were open the next day. And I had a bunch of friends in high school who said, we're going to Six Flags tomorrow. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like someone just died there yesterday. And they looked at me and they said, do you not think that tomorrow is going to be the safest day that park ever sees? <laughs> so that's how they might have thought about that guy. They may have gotten him on a discount, and he's going to be watching his ass because these people are giving him a chance. They, that, that's that no, because because he was they, he. I don't think that's what that what the, what happened there. I think what happened there was he was one of the people who was working on their side, um, kind of because he he wasn't in charge of Chicago police. He was in charge of the National Guard. And the National Guard was a problem during those riots. That's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, but it, it, anyway, 
I found that as a very interesting kind of backwards fun fact. So part of it too is that when you have all these people showing up, they didn't, as we mentioned, they didn't really super plan for it. So Jackson, you're mentioning that they were having to deal with bad weather and uh, poor sanitation, and I was able to find that apparently there was one porta potty for every 833 people. Not only that, wow. the porta potties were uphill. And so the sewage eventually started flowing over from the porta potties and going downhill, mixing with the mud that the festival goers were then sliding in after that big rainfall. So I'm going to ask a question now. I was going to save it for later, but I'm going to go ahead and we can, we can just answer the question later, I guess, if we want to. If you were alive then, would you have wanted to be in that? Because already one porta potty sounds like i'm good like I, i'm uh, or 140 per 800 people i'm good i'm all right yeah I'm, I'm i mean okay. but see we're squares I mean, dude i don't think anybody knew that was going to be the case either no but but also the thing is i bet a large percentage of them were cool with it uh but man oh, like, yeah. I, and, yeah. and, I, and I do think it's because of you know where we live now but i i'm i'm such a i i, I just think that like from from me and Jackson's experience at ACL, I just think if that was the case, porta potty wise, I think we would have just left. I think we would have been like, no, we're not, we're not doing this. But here's Absolutely. the thing: is you you wouldn't have been able to leave. Yeah, if I you guess were that's if true. you were there early enough, there was a ten mile traffic jam, and people were parking. There was no parking lot; it was the street. Yeah, and that's what I was. You know, I think uh, I don't know which one of you said it, but that oh, the, well, they didn't know it was going to be that way. If you stuck stayed in a 10 mile traffic jam and then we're like all right well you know this is gonna work out really well i mean like they've already bought in (laughs) so you know yeah you had your time to think and turn around at that point but there was a lot of a lot of marijuana though maybe they were like oh whoa there was a traffic dude Uh, there was a lot don't touch the brown acid (laughs) don't okay so as jackson mentions don't touch the brown acid that was e.h beresford monk or aka chipmunk he was the the part of the lighting crew or the sound crew or something and he was uh, he was the lighting designer the lighting designer and michael lang realized he didn't have a master of ceremonies so he made this he made chipmunk be the master of ceremonies so he's the guy saying um he i think he was the guy that said okay so this is going to be a free festival um but that doesn't mean it's free it's not just a free-for-all we still have to take care of each other and also, don't eat the brown acid. I've been told that it's bad. And then he goes, but, I mean, if you're into that kind of thing, go for it, man. I mean, you know. Exactly. <laughs> he was apparently drafted super last minute. He's the very, like, hippie announcer voice throughout the whole thing, which leads, you know, leads to some great quotes if you watch some of these clips and stuff where he's talking about, oh, hey, if uh, Joe is here, your, your wife is backstage giving birth right now. Congrats. And he just moves on to the next note that he's got to read about, like, so-and-so call your your grandpa at the hospital. Yeah. And if you're curious about, like, you know, the exact lineup, uh, we mentioned that there's 32 acts that played over the course of these four days. And you're curious about set times. Wikipedia, shockingly, has really specific set times here. So... The first artist to play the opening act for Woodstock and all Woodstocks to come was Richie Havens. He played at 5.07 p.m. on Friday, August 15th, and he ended his set at 5.54 p.m. And here is the first note that I got when I was reading this, when I was like, wow, 
this feels like whenever we were trying to organize shows is he, he wasn't originally supposed to be the opening slot. His slot was slit up after the band Sweetwater was stopped by police en route to the festival and uh, other artists were delayed on the freeway. So I can't tell you how many times we've thrown a show and it's just like, we're like, all right, your set is, you're ready to go up. And they, they'll say like, hey, our bassist isn't here. And then we'll notice that the next band was already at the show. And it's like, all right, cool, you're playing now. That kind yeah, of shit. Yeah. And he, he, you can see footage of him, like them, they're like, hey, Richie, you're up. And he's like, oh, I'm not playing yet. I'm not supposed to be up yet. And then there's an interview with him where he's like, my bass player wasn't even there. <laughs> So it's a guitar player, a percussionist, who I'm not sure if is a drummer or not, but he was playing two congas and Richie. And I had never seen Richie Havens play. And he has the weirdest left-hand guitar technique. He basically just plays with his thumb hunched over the neck. So what's interesting is that he claims he played for three hours. Right. Yeah, there's there's some discrepancies. I mean, I'm sure everybody does. Well, I guess what's weird is that, like, so I, I I just had to like double check because I watched one of the documentaries about it and he talked about playing for two hours and forty five minutes and I was like, you just said he played for forty five minutes. I gotta make sure I heard this correctly and make sure I'm not insane. Uh, wh- what's interesting is that the way he talks about it is that so you mentioned the whole thing of like he he, he got pushed on the stage. He was like uh, there was someone he was someone he was talking to and uh, they were like, hey, you gonna go on stage? And he was like, no, I'm fifth. And they were like. Uh, well, I'm third and I don't want to go up yet. And he's like, well, you're, I'm not, I'm not going up yet. And then eventually like the, the, the promoters pushed him up and like, you're going on stage now. This is what's happening. And he said that he, like the way he describes it is that he, they just tell, they kept, they kept telling him to play. They're like, keep going. No, don't stop. He, apparently he was like, in his mind, he was making shit up. Oh, that, his, that song freedom. Yeah. I was going to say he did make up an entire song while he was up there as a like, fourth encore or something whatever it was i think he i think he said that that song was already a song but like he made up like the whole like there was like a whole intro that was super long that he just made up on on the fly right there uh yeah uh, so we have conflicting information because i heard an interview from him where he said he wrote that song on stage so bizarre and so he just thought about the word freedom which is why he says it a bunch of times before he says anything else. <laughs> yeah. So there's, so there's, there's the. I guess the thing is that um, what I, what I'm reading now is that it says that he that he claims he played for two hours and forty five minutes, but uh, there are other bands that a thousand percent played while the sun was up, and the sun the sun didn't go down until eight. So he definitely didn't play for two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. You know what that is? Uh, drugs are a hell of a drug. And also probably just like sitting in the sun for as long as like sitting around, just like waiting to play anxious. You're doing drugs. You are, you, you, for some reason took a helicopter here. Like, yeah, he was no sweating before he played his first note. Yeah. So I'm, I think there was some, uh, indulging, indulging going on there. Yeah. Yeah. But man, the energy. Yeah. And it didn't take long. Or uh, into the, uh, you know, a lot of these acts, I don't know, but it didn't take long for the rain to come in. Uh, think about the fifth uh, act of the night around 10, 20 p.m. Uh, Ravi Shankar uh, started playing uh, and uh, played through the rain. And then up after uh, him was supposed to be, um, what is it, the Incredible String Band but they declined to perform because there was a rainstorm happening. So uh, Melanie was pushed out on stage. Once again, a person I don't know, but uh, 
uh, I don't know if that's a band or uh, just an artist, but uh, they were uh, called back for two encores. And then, uh, you know, the closer of the night was Joan Baez, who um, is notable for this performance because she was six months pregnant at the time. And she was talking about how her, her husband was in jail for um, protesting the war. And she made an announcement during her set, like, I just spoke with him a couple hours ago. He's okay. And everybody starts cheering. And she was like, this, this song goes out to him. But I also want to mention, like, Ravi Shankar, you said he played Through the Rain. Does anyone know who Ravi Shankar's daughter is? Oh, shit. Is that... Um, uh, Nora Jones? Yeah. That's Nora Jones's dad. She's a, and, a UNT alumni. Uh, Arlo Guthrie. Who's Arlo Guthrie's dad? Probably Woody Guthrie. Yep. This I, land I, is your land. I think uh, a really a really important thing is that if, if you don't know who Ravi Shankar is and, and the importance to music that Ravi Shankar uh, has is just, just, just spend like a little bit of time listening to Ravi Shankar. Uh, it Hell, is... Just watch the uh, performance from Woodstock. It's pretty phenomenal. Well, sure. and if you've ever listened to Norwegian Wood by the Beatles, yeah. that is, that's Ravi Shankar on the sitar. Ravi Shankar's uh, uh, influence to, I, I mean, especially just just like Western music is is absolutely insane. Ravi Shankar brought something so important to uh, what we would never have in Western music. Um, and he gave the Beatles drugs. And that's why. <laughs> that's the only reason Brown they wrote their I mean, best stuff. It wasn't the first time. But no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I mean, he definitely definitely did not not give them drugs. So, <laughs> Joan Baez, uh, her set. She was so confident, but I, but she sang one song a cappella, and I, I'm having trouble remembering what it was right now. But she was changing keys like the whole time while she was doing it, and I think she was just like, "Nah, I don't really care. Like, I'm just gonna sing." This is this is what I was kind of like mentioning earlier is that like, you know, I think a lot of bands back then, they, I mean, it wasn't the importance wasn't about um, the musicality; it was about like just performing it was about the it was about the art it was about uh just getting the out message. there yeah the message especially especially like right there the message was so important so um it, you know whether or not you agree with that being the right call i mean back then that was that was the idea it wasn't about if you were the best it was about if you could come up there and and just put your your heart on the well, stage plus it was also three in the morning which i mean wasn't the latest time that they had a performance at Woodstock, but <laughs> that was definitely late enough where I don't I understand why people wouldn't care as much. I gotta say, Hagen, I couldn't agree with you more, and I know I'm gonna get stoned for this, no pun intended, um, but no one exemplifies that attitude more than Jimi Hendrix. I <laughs> used to love Jimi Hendrix, and then listening to the live album for this, I was just like, man, this guy man. can't sing, and like there were some solos in there where I was like, what the fuck is happening right now? Is well, it yeah, nine I mean, in lighting the morning? Your, lighting, lighting your guitar on fire doesn't translate to tape very well. We will, we will, uh, That's fair. we will, we will get into the Jimi Hendrix of it all. Uh, Saturday? I, Do we want to go into Saturday? Well, uh, our boy Chipmunk at the end of Joan Baez's performance got over the microphone and said, "All right, people, um, there's nowhere you can really go, so just lay down, find a spot on the ground next, and uh, cuddle with your partner." Yeah, he's he's saying like say good night to your neighbor. When we'll we'll see you in the morning. We'll see you in the morning. <laughs> oh my god. He's the true hero of this story. He really is. Um okay. Uh before day 2, uh Adam, can you name one band that was that didn't play but quote unquote was supposed to play and can you tell me why? 
Uh, I know uh, the Rolling Stones were supposedly asked, and I don't know why they said no, but they were probably busy doing other things to make more money. Okay. So Wait, <laughs> I have a question. Go ahead. Was this before or after that Hells Angels kerfuffle at the Altamont show? So that's later. That's after this. And it was that show was, I think, organized by uh, Michael, Michael Lang. Lang. So the Rolling Stones did not play. Now, Adam, your guess is uh, incorrect. And I will, I will give, I will give uh, Jackson and Dave a hint for the reason as to why the Rolling Stones did not play. It was not because of the band. It was specifically Mick Jagger. What do you think Mick Jagger said or was doing uh, to prevent them from playing? There's too much mud, baby. Not funny. Not funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to guess that Keith was, was arrested in Canada. This is, this, is, this is Mick Jagger specifically. Mick Jagger was filming a bad hero movie in Australia where he played a character na- named Ned Kelly. He w- <laughs> Ned Kelly. <laughs> he was supposed to be like, a, like an outlaw who stood up for the injustice of the man. And apparently the movie was trash. <laughs> and apparently Mick Jagger is a really bad actor. So there you go. That's why the Rolling Stones didn't play, because Mick Jagger was busy trying to start his acting career. Can you imagine Mick Jagger trying to hold a gun? <laughs> <laughs> Just like, yeah. His wrist got a real flopping down. Wrist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he makes, he can't help but makes make sound effects when he pulls the gun out, like, pew, pew. <laughs> What a bad Man. reason to miss, like, a giant historic festival that you... Granted, I mean, it, they still are a band that, you know, mattered in the long run, but it just seems crazy that that's the reason, is he was acting in a shitty movie. Not, you know, you know, they, they were still figuring out, like, sound editing, like, pretty heavily back then for movies, but I love the fact, I love the idea of, like, Mick Jagger, like, making, like, gun sounds, they're like, you have to stop. Yeah. We, ha- <laughs> we, we can't, we cannot get the gun sounds if you're going... <laughs> Well, That's funny. We we chug along into Saturday, August sixteenth of nineteen sixty nine, the second day of the Woodstock Music Festival, an Aquarian exposition. Um, there are a lot bigger names on this, and I mean you can just run through a ton of them. But uh, the first notable name for me, well, originally they were supposed to play second, but uh, Santana ended up playing third, and. Um, country joe mcdonald ended up uh coming in because santana wasn't ready uh i, I couldn't find out why they weren't ready but uh country joe McDonald. Uh, yeah i was yeah i was gonna say it's definitely drugs i mean <laughs> yeah wasn't wasn't country santana joe on... mcdonald played multiple times in the festival because of this so uh it really worked out well for him but here's the thing is this is one of those examples and we can talk about it with a, a future act on this list but i mean it wasn't santana's first show but it was Santana hadn't released their debut album yet. So they weren't a well-known band. And this is one of those performances at the festival that people point towards. There's a ton of video from it. I have never listened to Santana in my life. So I decided, okay, I'm going to listen to this live album. And I was like, whoa, this is actually, this is pretty fucking good. So, I mean, I was just, I was floored by it. Is that why you texted me about Santana? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so I texted Hagen because we were at a bar one night with my friend, and um, 
he turned, I guess Santana was on the radio or something, or he had been listening to Santana that day. And he turned to us and said, Santana is the most unique musician of all time and probably the best music ever. And Hagen and I were just floored. We were like, hey, like Santana's cool and all, but no. So so th- this person is a troll, but this person said it in like the most like straight way possible. And I, like, I, I remember just being jaw dropped like, Shut the fuck up. What the fuck? That's so dumb. That's the dumbest thing you could say. He also genuinely thinks Paul McCartney is dead, and that's an imposter. Yeah, Country Joe, he he got up and said, if you notice on the Wikipedia timestamps, it was a, it was like from 120 to 130, and he got up to play that song, I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die Rag, where he's like, it was basically like a wartime nursery rhyme for the counterculture where he's saying like one, two, three, we don't want to go fight kind of thing. And he'd like the, in the documentary that, that Scorsese helped with it, they actually put like the words up on the screen with the little bubble that bounces across the screen. Yeah. Like it's the people singing along the lyrics. Yeah. It was really funny. Santana didn't want to play his set right away because he was geeked out on acid. That's what it takes, man. Um, I think my favorite, by the way, the incredible string band did get to play. They played Saturday. As far as I'm concerned, if you refuse to play, you don't get to play. So uh, in the future, keep that in mind if you're ever playing one of my shows. Um, Mountain, I had never heard of them. They, This was their third gig. Grateful Dead, they played one song. But guess what? They had a 55-minute set, so they played one song for 55 minutes. I want I want I want to briefly mention the guy. I I, I don't know if this is uh, if this is related, but um the uh, Chipmunk that guy right that's his name right is that, that the yeah, guy's the yeah the same guy or yeah. the lighting guy sorry sorry but master did, of was ceremonies he, was he was he actually a drug dealer or did he just make the announcement about do don't do the brown acid everybody was a drug dealer okay he was just so, passing along a message but yeah I mean he he followed up with one on I think Saturday and maybe Sunday about just a random comment about. I don't know if any of you have ever sat down and crossed your legs and smoked DMT, but you should try it. I mean, I'm not telling you what to do, but you should try it. Well, if if, if he was so a drug he dealer, might have been. if he was a drug dealer, it does track with Grateful Dead because uh, I'm really sorry for Grateful Dead fans out there. I'm not trying to offend, but a very large reason why the Grateful Dead became so popular was because their uh, their sound and I guess light guy at the time, I don't know, uh, but uh, he was a drug dealer. And so oh. it was one of those things where you would go to the Grateful Dead concert and then you, you, you would, you, sorry, you'd go to your drug dealer and it happened to be a Grateful Dead concert and it just happened to mix really well. The only reason I go to Grateful Dead concerts is to see John Mayer. <laughs> <laughs> that is the weirdest sentence that like, like 10 or 15 years ago, would be like, what? What are you talking about? The Grateful Dead and John Mayer? But they, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they had a terrible set. It was reported because the stage was breaking, and the rain cause was causing Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir to be electrocuted by their microphones. Well, so like, hey, let's back up a moment. I do want to mention this. I, I think most people can put two and two together, but it needs to be explicitly said. The reason why you don't want to play it, it's not safe to play in the rain uh, for a lot of reasons. It's not safe for the audience. It's not safe for the artist, but. If you just think about it, a microphone is essentially a live wire. In the right conditions, that shit's just gonna, it's gonna shock you. So 
you know, if you don't have a properly grounded system, you could seriously hurt someone. And especially if somebody has an underlying heart condition. So, you know, it's just not a great idea to play in the pouring rain. So I do want that to be said. Something that something that's interesting is that like in, in one of the documentaries I watched, they were talking about going acoustic and I'm like, all right, all right. So let's think about this for a second. Let's assume we're at the minimum. We're at 200,000 people, 250,000 people. We're at the minimum amount of people. And you want to go acoustic? You, I mean, of course you can't go electric. It's raining. But you think that the solution is put a guy with an acoustic guitar on stage and the crowd is already so much louder than a guy with an acoustic guitar. The, <laughs> the crowd is just, the crowd's going to, the, the loudest sound you're going to hear is, What's he, what's he doing? I can't hear him. What's happening? That's louder than the guy playing music. And I think that the crowd was, was already at least like 40 or 50 feet away from the stage. So yeah. Maybe the first 10 people would have heard anything from the stage acoustically. <laughs> I, I forgot to mention it earlier, but much like everything else, the sound and lighting were designed for a much smaller audience. Um, according to the sound and lighting people that they designed for a uh, approximately 200,000 people. So it was massively undersized. But apparently the, the sound was incredible. And it sounds really good in, in all the footage, too. It's the amphitheater, baby. I think they must have recorded out of the like monitor mix or something because there's good recordings of basically every performance. Oh, it's yeah. they're great recordings. I When I was listening to Santana, I was like, they must have like gone into the studio and redid some of this because this is so good. I'm sure any of this stuff we hear now has been remixed and remastered too. It's definitely straight off the board though, because they, I mean, like they, they talked about how they had planned, the organizers had planned to do like, they were filming every minute and they were recording every minute. It was, it was very intentional to make that a very good experience. And they released a fucking triple album of all the live recordings. Right. I was going to say that and the, the uh, documentary actually made them basically all the money they ever got as profit off of this. Cause as we'll talk about later, Turns out you can't make a profit selling tickets to an event where it's just free. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Surprise. I I do want to mention, too, that back in the day, in that era of music, you just had to be a better musician. And a lot of the instruments from that time are what we call vintage instruments now, and they are worth thousands and thousands of dollars for a very good reason. The level of musicianship that you had to have to be able to get involved in that kind of a festival minus Joan Baez was pretty, pretty, there was a higher standard. I think, I, I think, I think it's important to clarify <laughs> that the higher standard is the important part here. Not that you had, I, I think you have to be better than what a lot of people, and this is definitely a mean thing I'm going to say here. Uh, but we have a lot of people today who are just, I'm a musician because I've learned how to play a couple chords on piano, right? That's not what it was then because there weren't nearly as many people who claimed to be musicians. Uh, and so what, what you see is you see people like in their like best because this is they're the first ones who set this up. Right. Rock is 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 in its prime. People are still figuring it out. Uh, but what you see now is you see a lot of people who don't know what the fuck they're doing, still making music. And that's fine. I, I, I don't, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but like, you know, the, the standards are at a different level now of what you had to be able to do for your music for, with your instrument and for your music. So speaking of a long instrumental set, I do want to mention that if you were watching The Grateful Dead and you were about to overdose, 
they had a whole system set up for that. And it was by this, this uh, hippie commune named the Hog Farm, who was led by this guy. You can see him in a bunch of the footage walking around with like a kazoo and uh, getting people to sing in a, into the kazoo. His name was Wavy Gravy. Uh, but the system that they had set up was that they had a whole area to the backside of the festival. If you were overdosing, they would take care of you. And when you were done overdosing, you had to stick around and help someone else that was overdosing. So they kind of had like an assembly line of people that were just not having a good time. I, I, I really I really just want, if, if, if you're not driving right now, or if you remember later, please look up a picture of Wavy Gravy. He almost always has a clown nose on. Almost <laughs> always has a fucking clown nose on. And then when you see him without the clown nose on, you're like, fuck, I get it. I fucking get why you have the clown nose on. <laughs> Incredible. So let's bumble through uh, the last of these musicians on Saturday. Uh, just if for anything to name drop, but I'm just going to name. Uh, please interrupt if you guys have anything to say about it. I think we've already talked about them enough, but Credence Clearwater Revival, they played. Janis Joplin with the Cosmic Blues Band. Um, Sly and the Family Stone. If you're going to listen to anybody uh, who you don't know from this festival, listen to fucking Sly and the Family Stone. Yes. I, I love, too, that apparently their set ended at 4.20 a.m., according to Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. Quickly followed by The Who. And The Who was briefly interrupted by Abby Hoffman. If you don't know who Abby Hoffman is, was, uh, he was a member of the Chicago 7, and there is a Netflix movie right now, and he is played by uh, Sasha Baron Cohen in that. Haven't seen it myself, so I don't know if it's good. It is excellent. Go watch that movie, especially if you're interested in the politics behind Woodstock. Chicago, Trial of Chicago 7 is a great movie. But uh, about The Who, I don't know if you're going to mention this. I'm sorry if I'm interrupting you about this. They played Tommy front to back, and the crowd went insane apparently that the crowd saying every word with them from front to back from on tommy i didn't know that that's fucking great there were reports too that like uh jimi hendrix and i can't remember the guitar player for the name of the who right now pete townsend pete townsend they are the people were saying that they were the two loudest guitar players anyone's ever heard because they had a bunch of cabinets specifically made for this festival and those two guitar players brought their own stuff and just dimed everything out. And people were saying that, like, they could feel their brain throbbing from how loud everything was. And that just sounds like fucking torture to me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But we end the Saturday night, with the headliner, technically Sunday morning, with Jefferson Airplane. Uh, a, good, uh, a good second day of a festival. When you say morning, we don't mean like, oh, it was 4 a.m., 5 a.m., like late at night. It, it was 8 a.m. when they started playing. Yeah, the sun was up, and people were just, like, passed out. They played for almost two hours, it seems. That's too much Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they already showed too much of it uh, in the documentary that I watched. I was like, man, this is crazy. What I didn't know was that... Um, Jack Cassidy played bass for um, Jefferson Airplane, and he has a really famous Epiphone signature model. So that was cool to put that together. But I was surprised that such a good bass player played with Jackson. Stop laughing because I'm geeking out about bass for a second. Just <laughs> oh, give me one fucking second. So funny. 
You know, I meant to I meant to ask you guys, but I I I I I meant to do it myself. I didn't look it up, but I meant to ask you guys if you guys checked who was playing with Santana. Was it the Journey Boys? Did anybody look? It I up? wanted to, but I really I did not want to break that uh, mystique for myself, so I did not look it up. I thought that was going to be one of your uh, trivia things. So I, I, didn't, I didn't. No, didn't that I, I didn't look it up. I I I, I thought I figured it was the case. Uh, they said oh the drummer. Oh my god! I just looked up the former members of Santana. It is a fucking laundry list. I think there are a hundred people on it's, here. It's fucking session dudes. A lot of people would know Santana from uh, his collaboration with Rob Thomas in the mid to late '90s. Uh, when I was, we were talking about my fiance and I were talking about who played at the festival, and she was like, "Wait a second, Santana played at that festival? I thought he was popular in the '90s." And it's like with good reason because there's a huge gap in his career. Yeah, where this was like one of the biggest comebacks ever. Yeah, maybe aside from like Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash, but like huge, huge. Uh, not to not to not to uh, piggyback on on uh, fiancés here, but my fiance just brought me a beer, and then she brought it to me, and she's like, "Oh, do you want a koozie too?" And she went and got me a koozie after she brought me a beer. So thanks, Kara. Uh, did she bring you tea? She brought me tea. Ha! Uh, <laughs> that was the least satisfying can open. I know. I yeah, especially after that story. That uh, was, was a little bit of a bummer. Uh, Let's get uh, into we can, Sunday. We can fix it in post. Okay. It's fine. Okay. Uh, Dave, can you name one band that didn't play that was quote unquote supposed to play? And can you name a reason why they didn't, or the reason why they didn't play? I'm gonna say. Frank Zappa. Okay. And I'm going to guess that he really wasn't interested because he's not into drug culture. Okay. Jackson Adam, do you have any guesses as to why he didn't play? I apologize. I just looked at it, uh, looked it up because there, so, by the way, there's a huge list of what they call declined invitations and misconnections. So don't uh, say it. So don't on the so, Wikipedia. So stop. So, so stop, Adam, so you yeah, have to stop guess. talking. Stop talking. Adam. No, I, I don't know. I, I was going to say the, the drug thing that Dave did, but I think that was a different band who had that argument. I'm actually really curious to see if what you have found, Jackson, is the same, because I, I, I found this consistently with Zappa, but that still doesn't mean that it is always the case, because like I said, uh, there have been a lot of stories uh, throughout time. So uh, basically, he, did, he didn't want to play simply because he heard it was going to rain and there was going to be mud. That's it. Yep. He said, a lot of mud at Woodstock. We were invited to play there. We turned it down. So he was That's just so afraid crazy. Of, of rain. Yeah. He probably I, I, didn't want to ruin his gear. Simply, sim, sim, simply, it was specific to mud. It was specific to the mud. Not to the rain and his gear, but it was specific to the mud. So, uh, yeah, that's why he didn't play. Fucking, fucking, I mean, it's one of those things that's like, uh, in you know, like I said, the the rock festival thing didn't start uh, in, in, except in '67, two years ago. So I mean, bands are still getting used to what this looks like. Promoters are still getting used to what this looks like. So a band like Frank Zappa, and honestly, every band that said no, I fucking get why they said no, and I get why every band said yes too. Especially, I mean, for the one, I mean, for the payment, sure. But like, you know, y y we're still learning how this whole thing works. So it makes sense to go, yes, I would like to be a part of this this right. new thing that is probably the future of of live music. But for, from the perspective of uh, you know the the more conservative artist of just like I don't really I don't really need, I don't I don't want to fuck with this I don't want to fuck with like the weather I don't want to fuck with all the drugs I don't want to fuck with uh, I'm gonna give you guys I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you guys one more because um, uh, I, I don't think you'll guess it Jethro Tull 
uh, Jethro Tull didn't play because of a very, very silly reason, which is naked ladies. <laughs> so this is I'm gonna Get I'm it. gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna read the whole what was, quote. What was Mike Pence in the band? <laughs> I'm going to read the whole quote from Ian Anderson. He said, I asked our manager, Terry Ellis, well, who else is going to be there? And he listed a large number of groups who were reputably going to play. Uh, and that is going to be a hippie festival. And I said, well, there, will there be lots of naked ladies? And will, there, and will there be taking drugs and drinking lots of beer and fooling around in the mud? Because rain was in the forecast. And he said, oh, yeah. So I said, right. I don't want to go because I don't like hippies. And I'm, I'm usually rather put off by naked ladies unless the time is right. Oh my god, he fucking <laughs> predicted Woodstock. <laughs> All right. We get into our last day or days, depending on how you want to look at it. But uh as I look into, you know, the the previous day, it ended on the same day. I'm just going to stop saying days. But Jefferson Airplane stopped their set at 10 a.m. The next set on Sunday started at 2 p.m. So there really wasn't much time to sleep um, between those two bands. But yeah, the next also band it was, was the middle of the day, and it was August. That's so it true. Definitely wasn't like super nice out for sleeping out in the field. Yeah, I don't know what New York weather is like in August, but I'm sure it's warm for five hundred thousand people around you. It's warm anyway. It's 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 usually it's usually in the nineties if you're in specific parts of like or eighties or nineties in some parts of New York. Yeah. So the first set was Joe Cocker and the Grease Band. This is uh as we have spoken about before, Joe Cocker has that infamous performance of with a little help from my friends. Um Dave? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. His performance is so good. And if you haven't seen it, that documentary about his life is really, really well done. But I think my favorite part of it is in the in that long ass documentary, they again tried to put the lyrics up that he was singing, and I don't think they got it right because it's Absolutely. it's really hard to hear what he's saying. Well, he's yeah. so strung out. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't look like he's in good shape, but he puts on an incredible performance of that song. And honestly, I haven't seen any other songs from his set i don't think anyone has yeah he also <laughs> missed the first like two songs of his set and his band just played about him <laughs> i hope it wasn't those backup vocalists i think it was his guitar player and his bass player i uh <laughs> you know i wonder in, in in some situations for some bands if that's like a dream like oh we can play without him finally we can just go <laughs> i mean well i love the balls of them to just like hey our guy's not here. Imagine going to see John Mayer and John Mayer's like 20 minutes late and the band's just like, fuck it, we're going to play. Like, uh, That'd so be great, like, though. I know That'd John Mayer's great. band is incredible, but well, still, the people who go to see John Mayer are not there to see his band. Sure, sure, you gotta sure. You got to keep in mind, they had a very strict schedule to keep to for this festival. Well, so. what's 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 interesting is that, like, you know, I mean, they, they were pushing. So I bet that they started because someone was like, you have to start now. You, yeah. you have to play right now. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, Country Joe McDonald, he played uh, twice. So he played after Joe Cocker, Country Joe and the Fish. So uh, good for you. You played multiple sets at the original Woodstock. You know, kudos. Then we have the band. They play um, nothing too notable about that. Wait, Joe oh, Winter. Do, oh, can we back up for a second? Over the, uh, the giant thunderstorm that 
disrupted like half this final day of the festival. Might be. It looks like for about three hours. Yeah, they just had to pull everything off the stage or cover it, disconnect all the power, and they had to keep yelling at people to like get off, get away from the towers because they might collapse. That were holding up the lights and stuff. Oh yeah, that was our friend, our good old friend Chipmunk. Yeah. Being like, get off the towers, please. Just and re- I like that there's like... Repeatedly stating it, too. He's just like, please move away from the towers. Please, and there's please, please. Some little girl there's is on the stage, and he, over the, I'm guessing over the weekend, has come to know who belong who this little girl belongs to, like a child. And he's just like, Lily, get off the stage. <laughs> 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 but I do want to mention that the, the band 10 years after, who are not... Um, as far as the huge names in this festival go, they're not one of the ones that are regularly mentioned. But they are—they have an incredible set, and the frontman for that band just puts on an incredible performance. Well, there you go. We have Johnny Winter who plays, and uh, his brother Edgar Winter joined him for a couple songs. But then we get into uh, this is the infamous story from Woodstock: is that Crosby, Stills and Nash play, minus Neil Young, and it was their, supposedly, their first show. So, I Yeah, mean, it was. It, it, I don't it, know if it, it was their very first show, but it was one of the first. No, least. it was, it, well, supposedly, I mean, like, from, from all the, all the, like, the stories from people who worked it, they said that this was their first show. But what's interesting is that, you know, I, I, you have to think about, uh, again, how things work today, and to think about somebody who's on the radio and who is successful in a rock band who hasn't played a show or you know in a band that hasn't that hasn't played a show yet it's like what the fuck is going on like how right. did how did this happen and i don't know I, I i you know obviously i can't compare it to then but it is interesting to think about the fact that at the time they were six, they were on the radio they were selling records they were doing really well and this was their first show <laughs> what also they went on at 3am so there's you know they're joining that group that played it kind of late hours for a festival and uh, uh the interesting thing too is since you mentioned neil young didn't really play with them he did but just not when they were filming because he refused to be filmed and didn't let the film crew on the stage while he was playing which totally fits with his uh you know weird mentality about a lot of things his crazy horse attitude oh so <laughs> I have a I have a quick thought um, about about the three a.m. thing because I do think that uh, I do think that that substances probably have led to to why the three a.m. slot is so important for uh, for Woodstock and I think that it's interesting to think about the fact that they probably they all you know people got there early whatever substance started happening and then whenever they went to sleep they went to sleep for however many hours and when they woke up probably the like the people organizing were in the same boat and they just kind of started to push everything back in accordance to the schedule so i bet 3 a.m was either when everybody was peaking or and i don't think that's the case i would bet it's when everybody's like fully down and they're like ready to enjoy the the good shit and so i bet that's why like the like some of these infamous performances at 3 a.m happened yeah, no, I'm I'm just surprised that I bet they never thought that was the time they'd be playing when they signed up for this. True, which yeah. is something kind of funny to think about because this was a, I mean, a pretty good set for what it was too. At the time. I think it'd be really funny too to see a show now in 2021 where blood, sweat, and tears open for Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I think that yeah. would be just so ass backwards. Definitely. <laughs> so you know, 
we'll skip to the the final two acts of the festival, and uh, we have Shanana, and yes, you are right. That is the band from Greece, uh, and <laughs> apparently that performance was made possible by their good friend Jimi Hendrix, who played right after them. Jimi Hendrix wanted Shanana at Woodstock. They were friends, apparently. Oh my God! They were a doo-wop band. <laughs> well, Hendrix did play in doo-wop groups before he was famous. Yeah. Uh, Shanana was apparently like kind of gimmicky. They apparently were intentionally like the '50s, and they were like, "We know what we're doing. This is kind of a bit." Um, yeah, they had like greaser haircuts. They were the steel panther and, yeah. of their era. I, I mean, the '60s versus the '50s. I guess if that makes you the steel <laughs> panther of your era, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. Pe- pe- people talked about, and it's interesting to think about from my pers- from our perspective. It's like you know, uh, someone from someone who is in the '60s music industry is like, God, this sounds so '50s. I mean, I guess that kind of happens still today, but it still is weird to think about. Like, you, he- if if one of us heard Shanana, it would be weird for us to be like, man, they sound so like the '50s, but they were in the '60s. That's so crazy. Right. It's it's kind of comparable to like. Um, Eagles of Death Metal opening for Queens. Yeah, I mean, except for the except for the shared member aspect, I guess. But yeah, uh, and 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 so again with Jimi Hendrix, uh, it's important to note that he wanted the set time that he got. He asked for this. He desired this. <laughs> Jimmy, you asked for this. So, <laughs> Adam, do you know how many people he played to? I was about to say, I think we should mention that if we weren't going to, but this was the point where everybody had pretty much left or started to leave. So he pay- played for what, like 40,000 people maybe? Yeah. And people were leaving while he was playing still. Right. So when he started a- his set, he had more people. And by the time he was done, it was like 10,000-ish yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very true. Many of those people, uh, accordingly, wanted to just they stayed just to see what Jimi Hendrix looked like. They were like, "Oh, we know Jimi Hendrix. We just want to get a glimpse of him," and then they left. So, like a lot of them, not only were they leaving while he's performing, they were left after he's like they saw him start and then they leave. So, like that's got to be a gut punch. I've played a show before where like I start the first song and then the whole crowd leaves. Yep. It's a bad feeling. So, uh, the the story that that Mike Lang tells about it is that uh he he again, he was pushing for the fact of like you need to play not at this time. You need you need to play at like a, a earlier time, like don't play last. It's not going to be you're not going to play a lot of people and Jimi Hendrix wanted this time slot. So the whole time he's watching people leave. He's watching everybody leave, and he's watching kind of the crowd be like tired and whatever. Uh, and and then the moment happens. The moment where it all shifts. And uh, you know, I guess listening to it makes a difference uh, if you haven't listened to it. Uh, but uh, it, just 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 the concept alone of the Star Spangled Banner being the moment that changes everything to me, especially when it's like counterculture shit is like <laughs> what this changed everything mike lang talks about how when that started the sun was coming up and it was fully up and that was like this it, everything shifted so everyone everyone that was there because the performance was kind of like meh he said it was like like Jimi hendrix like dave like you said earlier he's like didn't sound very good jackson said it too like didn't sound very good it's interesting to think about but yeah he played it at a point where he would take liberties when the lyrics were not true anymore. 
and play some pretty aggressive things around the the melody itself and it was really symbolic of the time right yeah Yeah, and that's it's 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 one of those things. Like I said, if you listen to it, it makes sense. But if you just hear the sentence of, you know, Jimi Hendrix's set wasn't very good until he played "Star Spangled Banner" in front of a bunch of hippies who didn't like the war, uh, it's like, uh, I don't really understand how that's the good part of the set. Uh, but once you hear it, it definitely cha- it definitely changes things. It definitely puts it into perspective. Yeah, I mean, it is a phenomenal performance. It is in, like, the last third of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, though. yeah. So, like, yeah. you got to slog through a lot of, you know, really monotone singing and some uh, questionable choices of uh, playing. Most of the parts of it that are in that documentary we keep talking about, it's all from the very, like, last five, six songs because the rest of it was not good. yeah. And and it's it's interesting because he he got paid I think eighteen thousand dollars to play, uh, and he he had a house to stay at like that was across that was like across the field from the stage they had given him like everything, and he still wanted to play this late time and he got up there and he played that way and you know you know the sign of a really good like uh like promoter and showrunner is like man I feel bad for the artist you know because like it it it, it it's one of those things that's like a lot of promoters might look at the situation and go, this is your fault that you're playing to 40,000 people compared to half a million people. You could have played earlier. This is your fault. But he, he, you know, Mike, Mike Lang talks about how bad he felt for that situation. But then he talks about how amazing it was again in that moment of just like, holy shit, there was a shift. There was a crazy shift. There we are. We Woodstock is over. The, the musical festival of Woodstock 1969 is over. So, I mean, really, they didn't make money off of it, of the actual festival. Um, Adam, I believe you said it, but all the money, they the only thing that kept the guys, the two guys that kind of bankrolled this thing from financial ruin was the documentary that was released, what, the next year? Yeah, 1970. I also want to mention some of the medical... Um, emergencies that happened i have a list of numbers of things and part of that was that they didn't have enough medical staff because they were preparing for 50 to 100,000 people and five five or ten times that showed up but what was the number what number did you just say right there what number did you say 50 to 100,000 50,000 okay I to, gotcha. yeah I, no i totally get how that was my bad i get how that was confusing <laughs> Fifty-two, a hundred thousand, eleven two hundred. Um, but apparently, I was like, I was like, I literally, I legitimately was like, do I make fun of him or am I an idiot? What, which, which one am I supposed to do right now? There were fifty-two, a hundred thousand people. <laughs> Damn, that is very confusing. Uh, anyway, according to uh, some journal of emergency medical services, they treated seven hundred and ninety-seven bad trips. 23 epileptic seizures, 57 cases of heat exposure, 176 asthma attacks, 938 foot lacerations, 135 foot punctures, 346 miscellaneous foot injuries, one broken back from a woman who fell from the scaffolding. There were two deaths reported. One was an overdose, which was apparently from insulin. One was from a tractor accident where a person got run over while sleeping in a field. 
there were two births, one of which was in traffic, and the other was somebody who got airlifted to a nearby hospital, and there were four miscarriages. So I guess if there's uh, two deaths and two births, it's kind of like they cancel each other out, right? Yeah, but there were four miscarriages. Ugh. So I, I, I have nothing to say about that. We're negative four. <laughs> <laughs> so there, that was Dave's death corner for this week. <laughs> there we go. There we go. That's it. Um, uh, so uh, a couple. I, I have a, an interesting thing to me. That so this is this was. Uh, um, a lot, a lot of fears about this festival was that it was going to be violent. A lot of people worried about it. That's why um, they, you know, they they took efforts into going to the right place where they could host the festival, so there wouldn't be like riot police because riot police would, were ready for like a violent festival. Um, and they hired the right person, like I mentioned earlier, to run security. Uh, what's interesting to me is that it was a peaceful festival. It, it was peaceful, but the reports are that. So they ran out of food on the first day. They uh, they worked with Food for Love concession workers for uh, for the food. And this specific thing ran out of food. Um, what they did was they, <laughs> for burgers and hot dogs, they hiked the, the price up from 25 cents to a dollar. The attendees burned down the fucking stand. <laughs> So I'm like, I'm, I'm like, yeah, this was, a, oh my God, so peaceful. They burned down the stand. Holy shit. Like, yeah, <laughs> this is a peaceful festival until they fucking raise the price of burgers and hot dogs. And so you can't so, eat. Hold on. You said it was 25 cents? 25 before. cents. 25 cents for a burger and a hot dog. And then so a that, dollar. So that's about $7 today. And for comparison, a dollar is 26 bucks. More or less today. So that, but I mean, I mean, I, I mean, it's a I big guess price that jump up. if you weren't uh, planning on that, though. But I guess the big that's thing like also one Bud Light at a Metallica show. Exactly, that's what I was thinking <laughs> of. It's like, I mean, I, I think of going to festivals, and I'm like, I'm not drinking here. That's not happening. I mean, I'll have like maybe a beer, but fuck, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not buying much here. Well, they had other uh, vendors lined up, but they were like, they did. How many people are going to be there? Yeah, we're not yeah. doing that. Yeah, and so it, the, the the food the food thing got got super fucked there and it's really interesting to hear they burned down the fucking stand after the prices went up so i i want to ask each of you one more time if you guys want to guess any uh any bands uh or artists that uh that dropped out who or did not dropped out but who, who was asked to play but didn't play does anybody have any more bands they would like to guess i tainted my eyeballs so i can't oh, yeah me too right. yeah uh, you guys <laughs> all tainted so you guys know why the Beatles didn't play, right? Because uh, they broke up. <laughs> what? I don't know. You said you tainted your eyeballs. Why did the Beatles not play? I don't know. Here, let me look it up real quick. <laughs> Dave, Adam, why did the Beatles not play? John Lennon died. What? No, it was yeah. 1969. What? It happened in the 80s. <laughs> you guys are fucking lame as hell. Play the goddamn game. I don't know. Um, they, uh, they, were they, they weren't England. a band anymore. Sorry, you guys said something at the same time that was both wrong. No, they both said the wrong thing. They both said more wrong stuff. Just tell no, us. I know dude. I was wrong. Adam, Adam, why did they not play? Oh, I don't know. I just know oh, that I was joking. Oh my god. My answer the was The Beatles not, is the most real. interesting one because there's a bunch of different reasons why, and it leads me to think I don't think the Beatles were actually asked to, asked to play. There were too many we, drugs. So, what the a lot of people cite that uh that Lennon really wanted Yoko to appear. And oh. that was a controversy. That was, a, that was one reason. The other reason is that, uh, immigration, uh, Nixon did not want John Lennon to, uh, be in the country. Fucking immigration. 
The other reason is that they had a uh, surprise rooftop concert in London in 1969, and they were very much like, this is this is the thing we want to do, not Woodstock. Was um, that the Apple Studios show, uh, which was their last show? I can't remember what where the show was. Um, yeah, it broke the radius clause. <laughs> <laughs> no playing um, a gig within 50,000 miles. <laughs> <laughs> But the Beatles one is one of those things. And then the documentary I watched claimed that Lennon was apparently uh, in his home in New York and just didn't want to do it. Um, or one of the documentaries claimed that. And I was like, I don't think they asked the Beatles. I just don't. Or if they asked the Beatles, the Beatles straight up ignored that shit. Because at that point in 69, what fucking reason do they have to pay attention to that? They have, they have no reason to pay attention to that festival. Yeah. So... We we are out of Woodstock, and, you know, the legacy, I mean, like, I don't know if we have, like, you know, final thoughts here, but there, there, it was obviously a huge deal. A lot of, they tried to commemorate the land, make it, you know, a national park, all that kind of stuff. Things panned out. Some things didn't. Uh, Richie Havens, when he passed away, his ashes were spread uh, across the festival grounds, which is a, a kind of a, a sweet way of ending it. Uh, Dave, did you have anything uh, you specifically wanted to talk about the aftermath and legacy? Yeah, I just think that it was uh, a lot of the media tried to report that this was a huge disaster. But meanwhile, what was going on was even when they did run out of food, all the local town people got together and essentially provided them with food and they somehow airlifted it there. And the entire festival, they were just sharing food and their there's footage of people sitting in the crowd passing around a bottle of champagne and everybody's just taking a drink and there's people sharing their uh, granola with the other, you know, the person next to them. And they're like, do you want a little, do you want, do you want one of these boiled eggs from me? They really did make it a peaceful thing. And at that time, 500,000 people we have to realize is essentially a small city. And so the fact that there were only three deaths or whatever it was and, I mean, there were hundreds of medical problems, but there were hundreds of thousands of people there. So compared to what would happen in a normal city in the run of a day, they did pretty good for themselves. Well, and the population of that town specifically, like in the 70s, was about 2,000 to 3,000 people. Right. So all those people showing up with a lot of them with no food because they didn't think about it or didn't think they needed to worry about it. Yeah, a lot of people said that they were just like, we're just going to go. They didn't bring any camping supplies or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, a lo- I mean, Max is such a – Max Yasger, the farm owner, is such a big person to thank for the fact that things didn't go south because I think him talking to his neighbors and him talking to people made a very big difference as to, like, hey, this is going to be fine. Don't fuck with shit. And then it helped, you know, roughly half a million people have food yeah and they definitely had milk (laughs) there's footage of people calling their parents and their parents are like oh my god how are you are you okay okay and and like the people are just like yeah we're fine everything's groovy and like uh this 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 cat from from ohio gave me some food the other day and and we're all good everything's totally groovy man relax dad watching that documentary the the very long one they have a lot of those like scenes from the the festival yeah it's very 70s oh my god 
An interesting thing also to think about is that, sure, again, about Max, Max Yasger and his milk farm, I mean, that was so important, but a very large reason that they said yes to this was because uh, it was a very wet season. There was a lot of, like, there was a lot of rain throughout the whole, so they didn't have any hay, so they could, they had the space. It's really, it's it's such an interesting thing to think about. Like, I'm, they might have said yes anyway, but they, a really big thing was they didn't have any hay. So, like, that's thank you, hay? Thank you, rain. Thank you, rain, for, like, giving a dry, a, 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 like, a wet season so there was no hay. But also the aftermath of the festival when the people, like, a lot of people stayed behind to make sure that his farm was not littered with trash and debris. Oh, that's so nice. There were reports of it smelling like the worst thing you've ever smelled in your entire life. And it's like we I mentioned earlier, that. like I was talking about with the the porta potties overflowing and people sliding around in it and like <laughs> I can't imagine the <laughs> But I mean the next year he's uh, the owner of the farm, Max, was doing some interview or something and they, they asked about hosting another Woodstock there and he's like, Oh no, definitely not. Like we did one, we're good. But, yeah. you know, my farm's fine. Everything's great. It's all back to normal. Good for him. Because there, there was also footage of people from the town saying, like, no, we don't want to be involved in this. These kids are doing pot and doing drugs and, and smoking with cigarettes. And they're all hoodlums. And the interviewers are like, no, like, it's, they're not doing any of I mean, they're not ruining anything just because they smoke a little pot. Well, a yeah. little pot, a little pot's a bit of an understatement. Yeah, a lot of pot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I do think the most notable legacy is that, you know, there were, you know, what we see as festivals nowadays, whether or not this, you know, this isn't the biggest festival of all time, but it is one of those that, like, when you think of your summer music festival, this is what you think of, um, and not that it was the first and definitely not the last but it, it definitely it it made its impact to this day and there were a couple of iterations which we are not going to elaborate here because in a future date we do plan on talking about the infamous Woodstock 1999 <laughs> during its 30th anniversary and the uh I guess also infamous uh Woodstock 50 that was supposedly going to take place in 2019 but that is for another day, and um, we would just like to thank you for uh, sticking around for this very peaceful episode of the podcast. You guys all right, are let all me, groovy let me, cats. Let me uh, let me let me take us out of the peaceful zone for a second. If you, as a listener, uh, felt personally attacked by Jackson shaming you for not knowing about Woodstock's whatever he shamed you for. Fuck that. Don't feel shamed. Jackson's an asshole. All right? Peacefulness over. Right? We did it. We're done. I did it. I fixed it. Are we good? I don't, I don't, know, if you, I don't know if you guys are good. <laughs> I think Adam and I are good. He's, he, yeah, we, he's, we both he's, watched the same three-hour uh, three and 50-minute documentary. Oh, it was so grueling. Good. I didn't know that it was going to be that until like 45 minutes in, and I was like, when is this thing going to start? Like, when is someone going to say something about the festival? See, I mean, I, I kind of like that type of documentary where it's less people just talking about a thing that happened and they're kind of trying to show it. Less words it and more pictures, huh, way, Adam? It goes on for way too long, though. Like, if it was a 90-minute documentary Dave's, like that... Dave's trying to fine. make it not okay. Dave's trying to make it not okay between you guys. Yeah, all those books <laughs> well, back we there set something up. are picture books. We, we, tried, we tried so hard to just feel the peaceful vibe. It's just it just didn't work. It just couldn't work out. 
but yes, so thank you all for being here peacefully with us. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate it so much. Uh, we can't wait to do the next part. Go ahead, Jackson. I forgot to say at the top of the episode, happy Black History Month. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, so yes, so thank you all for being here. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, if you have not already, uh, hit the follow or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are lo- you are using to listen to this. Losing to <laughs> listen to this. Uh, <laughs> thank you all so much. Yeah. Uh, you can you can find us on your social media DFTA podcast. Don't be the artist. Look us up on whatever you use. Hit the follow button for us. We really appreciate it. Anybody have anything else? It's Brittany, bitch. Fuck off. Give me your title. <laughs> That's uh, Woodstock, right? <laughs> oh, God. It's Woody Woodstock. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs>